Hi, it's Tess Novotny, and I'm a producer for Colorado Edition. Before we start today's show, we just wanted to say thank you. Our show and public radio itself only exists because of donors like you. We know that it's an uncertain time for everyone right now, and that many of the financial problems that plagued us in 2020 are far from over in 2021. But if you are in a position to donate to KUNC, we would really appreciate it. Listener support is what allows us to bring you stories. So if you can, go to KUNC.org and support us. Thanks. And now, here's today's show. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, former members of law enforcement weigh in on ways to address the issue of police brutality. This focus on bad apples is, is misguided when we look at, at how to really improve the profession. We'll have more on that coming up. Plus, how the pandemic is impacting an annual count of people experiencing homelessness in our state. Those stories and more, just ahead. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. We begin today's show with an update on people experiencing homelessness. About this time this year, we'd be seeing numbers from the annual point-in-time count of unhoused people. That survey is mandated by the Department of Housing and Urban Development and is a major source of data on regional homelessness. The data is used to secure funding and services for the vulnerable homeless population. This year, because of the pandemic, things are looking very different for the point-in-time operation. Organizers in Denver, Boulder, and the seven-county metro region have called off the 2021 count for unsheltered people. We have KUNC's Ray Solomon with us right now to provide some context on this development. Ray, thank you for joining us. Hey, Erin. So about that context, um, why is this point-in-time count so important? What does it tell us? Well, you know, it really gives us a snapshot of homelessness in the region, you know, the scale of homelessness, some of the demographic information behind that. And it's a really tricky population to get data on because unless they're accessing services and self-reporting their experience of homelessness, the only way to get a handle on how many people really lack a roof over their heads is to go out and just take a count. Why exactly is the count being canceled this year? What isn't safe about it? It's social distancing, plain and simple. The Denver Metro Homeless Initiative organizes the event. And as communications director Jamie Reif told me, in normal years, it's a pretty high-touch process. We employ hundreds of volunteers to go out on the night of and not only count, but also directly speak to people and ask them questions about their experience of homelessness, where they're staying, um, you know, demographic information, when they were last housed. But it's just the unsheltered portion of the count that's been canceled in the Denver metro area. So the sheltered population will still be counted. And Rife says they can pull most of that information directly from shelter records. So that will happen on February 25th. How important is it to have this data? I mean, does it throw a huge wrench into the works for groups that work with the homeless population? Yes and no. I don't want to overstate the importance of the point-in-time count. Even in a normal year, it's a very imperfect count, and everybody understands that it comes up short. The service providers I spoke with, they all automatically use multipliers, you know, anywhere from two to six times the point-in-time count to get a better estimate of, of the population they're dealing with. That being said, Kathy Alderman with the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless told me that losing out on this data for 2021 will definitely impact her group significantly. We won't have 
an estimate of unsheltered, the unsheltered population in Colorado, even though we know the point in time is flawed and doesn't count everybody, it's a good tool to give us um, an idea of what we should be planning for. And it's particularly hard to know what to plan for this year because COVID-19 has had such a huge impact on homelessness in the region that won't be captured in any data that we have. I can imagine. I mean, what does this look like? What can you tell us about the pandemic's impact on homelessness? Anecdotally, the pandemic has led to a big increase in homelessness. According to the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless, demand for shelter beds in the Denver area has increased by 30 to 60 percent. And that's happening even as social distancing has shrunk capacity. Jamie Reif said the Metro Denver Homeless Initiative has fielded a lot more inquiries in the past year. It's a lot of people who have never had to really grapple with this level of housing insecurity. You know, we've probably seen a tripling just the number of people reaching out that have lost jobs related to COVID. And then as Kathy Alderman pointed out, there's a lot more visible homelessness in our cities. That there are more people camping outside in more places than there ever have been. That's difficult to to quantify, especially without a formal count. Now, as a journalist covering homelessness, I can tell you I was waiting on the 2021 point in time to get a better sense of COVID's impact on that, that population. Researchers also regularly use this data. So I spoke with Daniel Brisson. He's the director of the Center on Housing and Homelessness Research at the University of Denver. Everything that I've been doing has been turned on its head because of COVID. Um, we can't go out and talk to people the way we used to. People aren't living the way they used to. The point in time report would have filled in some of the blanks in his research, but he described the pandemic as this seismic disruption that can't be captured in a single number. The pandemic changed everything. And so it's really hard to compare or to know what life is like in 2021 compared to 2020, just based on a point in time count. So more homelessness and at the same time, less information about it. Are there any bright spots? The pandemic is forcing people to be more creative. Some groups are working on better, more complete ways to capture some of this information in real time. So at least providers and researchers can benefit. And front range communities, in spite of the data, are seeing additional sources of funding for homeless services. There's federal CARES Act money. And at least in Denver, providers are expecting to see the first money from the new sales tax increase that voters approved last November. And that's, of course, uh, that was measure 2B. KUNC's Ray Solomon, thanks so much for your reporting on this. Anytime. There were many notable incidents of police brutality and violence in 2020. And just like most of us, police officers want people to understand their perspective. And for some officers, if they see a problem, they want to be a part of the solution. That can involve leaving the force and looking at policing from the outside. We wrap up our series on fatal police encounters in the Mountain West with a look at how some former members of law enforcement are approaching solutions from their perspective. Madeline Beck has more. Until recently, Logan Daly was a deputy sheriff in rural Cherry County, Nebraska. Today, he's the managing editor and reporter for five publications based in Wyoming. I would say both are noble professions. I mean, they're they're both, in my opinion, very important professions. Daly loves his new job. 
but he says the media can poison how the public sees the police, even in rural areas. He remembers one experience he had as a cop. There was a young man that lived in one of the towns where I used to patrol through, and I drove through one day, and he put his hands up, and I kind of chuckled, and I was like, what the heck? And so I I stopped, and I'm like, what are you doing? And he says, hands up, don't shoot. And and this is like an eight-year-old. And so I asked him, I'm like, well, why why are you doing that? He goes, well, I saw it on YouTube. And I was like, what did you see on YouTube? Well, cops kill people. Daly was angry and upset. He hopes in his new role, he can foster better communication between the police, the media, and ultimately the community. He's finding some departments are more willing to talk than others, though. As a former police officer, he knows transparency can be tricky. He says officers are trained to protect people's privacy. I don't want to break that that trust, basically, that the public has in us. And also, he says, if they are seen as breaking that trust... You're constantly concerned about being sued. Because, I mean, this is America. You can sue anybody for anything. He says more training could help with that, letting police chiefs and officers know what they can and can't say under the law. But it's not just about transparency. He recognizes that there are bad apples, and they're not always dealt with. I've encountered that, and I'm not saying this officer was going out and killing people. It was nothing like that. But he was overstepping his bounds. I would bring it up and say, hey, this is the issues. Here's what I have. And then nothing would happen. This focus on bad apples is is misguided when we look at, at how to really improve the profession. That's Paul Taylor. He's a former officer and officer trainer who now spends his time trying to figure out ways to make policing safer for both citizens and officers. The current approach to how we look at, say, bad outcomes in policing um, really lends itself towards a, a liability focus for police organizations. In other words, if something bad happens, it starts a criminal investigation. Officers involved don't say exactly what happened, fearing prosecution. Case details are sometimes sealed off. That focus uh, stunts the growth of the profession and, and, and really the the ability to learn. His research at the University of Colorado Denver includes how to minimize accidental shootings. He says that kind of research into policing is needed right now and isn't getting enough attention. I call it the profession that science has left behind because in a lot of areas, whether that be from the management perspective to how we look at improving outcomes, uh, we're really stuck in this this, um, Tayloristic mindset that um, if we just tell people to do better, they will. He says we need to analyze incidents of police violence the way we look at emergency room deaths or plane crashes. There's a thousand reasons a plane might crash. If we're only looking at the actions of the pilot and whether or not they were criminal, we would miss why the event occurred most of the time. He says that system wouldn't just pin acts on individuals, but instead make it the responsibility of the entire profession to figure out how to avoid accidents or abuses of power in the future. Former cop and police psychologist Jack Digliani would add looking at the mental health of cops involved as well. He wants cops to ask for help before their work product would degrade to the point where, um, you know, they they become uh, dangerous to themselves, others or um, their work product is so bad they begin to encounter discipline. Digliani says police officers face significant stress in their work and there's a fallacy that asking for help is a sign of weakness to counteract this. 
He's set up an entire 12-step initiative. It's being used by police officers around the nation to encourage every officer to monitor their mental well-being and to seek help if they need it. But he says there's still not enough focus on mental health. Yes, we still in fact have not only a long way to go in departments that, that implement these programs, we also have many departments that have no support programs at all, if you can believe that, in the 21st century. But that is in fact the case. He just says all officers should have a place to go, a person to talk to, and resources. Because he says policing will stick around in one form or another in any society without complete anarchy. So we need to figure out how to help officers help us. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Madeline Beck. That was the final part in our series, Elevated Risk, Police Violence in the Mountain West. You can listen back to all of the previous stories, which we ran throughout the course of the week, by finding our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for KUNC's Colorado Edition. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. This year marks the 30th anniversary of the Colorado Rockies baseball franchise. And in those three decades, the ball club has yet to claim a World Series title or even a Hall of Fame player. Earlier this week, team management seemed poised to keep it that way when they finalized the trade of fan favorite third baseman Nolan Arenado in a move our next guest has dubbed the dumbest trade in Colorado sports history. Mark Kisla covers the Rockies for the Denver Post, and he spoke to Colorado Edition producer Alana Schreiber about what made this move dumb, where the team goes from here, and how fans fit into all of this. Why did the Rockies general manager trade the star player? Nolan Arenado signed a $260 million contract in February of 2019. And when he did it, he fully expected Number one, the Rockies would be a regular playoff contender. And number two, that he would finish his career in Colorado. But that very year in 2019, two things happened. The Rockies' fortunes went down the tubes. They lost 90 baseball games. And the relationship between Arenado and the general manager, Jeff Breidich, got, pardon the pun, very, very rocky. I think Arenado believed he should be a partner in decisions made about the baseball team. When you're getting paid a quarter of a billion dollars and you're the star of the team, that's certainly understandable. In so many words, Jeff Breidish told him to shut up and play, and that did not go over well at all. Until this point, Arenado has only played in the major leagues as a Rocky. During the last eight years, how has he contributed to the team and the fan base? The loyalty to Nolan Arenado among the fan base is huge. And this is a fan base that regularly supports the Rockies with an attendance between 2.5 and 3 million fans a year. I've been watching baseball since I was a little kid in the 1960s. My dad loved the game, and so we spent a lot of time at Major League ballparks. And I can tell you this, in person, the two greatest fielding baseball players I've ever seen are Roberto Clemente and Nolan Arenado. In any given night that you went to the ballpark and Nolan Arenado was playing third base, you could see a fielding play that made your jaw drop and left you speechless. What are the Rockies getting in exchange for their star player? The Rockies got four minor league players, one pitcher, 
that has pitched briefly in the major leagues. And none of these five players were considered top prospects in the Cardinals organization. In your article, you wrote that franchise owner Dick Monfort takes his stars for granted and plays his fans for suckers. Can you explain that a bit more? This Nolan Arenado trade is not an outlier, and that's the unfortunate thing about it. Years and years ago, Matt Holliday, one of the heroes of Rocktober that many baseball fans remember, was getting toward the end of his deal, and he wanted a new deal, and he wanted to be paid market value. The Rockies portrayed him as selfish and shipped him off to Oakland. So this is a recurring pattern. And now with Arenado gone, Trevor Story is the face of the franchise and his deal is up very shortly. I just fear that this pattern will continue and there'll be more heartbreak for Rockies fans. Speaking of trades like Holiday and also DJ LeMahieu, you wrote in your article that their relentless, heartfelt efforts to turn a two-bit baseball operation into something worthy of civic pride ended in betrayal by management they were foolish enough to trust. Can you describe how those trades not only affected the team, but really impacted the fan base? DJ LeMahieu left the Rockies as a free agent, and and then he went to the Yankees and became a most valuable player candidate and a core player for (laughs) one of the most beloved and acclaimed franchises in all sports. He was what's known as a glue guy, a player in the clubhouse that teammates look to in good times and bad for leadership and reassurance. So when he departed, that had a very, very adverse effect on this team, especially when they were struggling. The fan base, that's a whole different thing. I just wonder if this Nolan Arenado trade will finally make baseball fans in Colorado pause and wonder if they really want to spend their money with a franchise that is mismanaged as bad as the Rockies often are. To go back a bit, in order to be inducted into the Hall of Fame, a player needs to receive 75% of the votes from the Baseball Writers Association of America. While no baseball player received enough votes to be inducted in 2021, Todd Helton, former Rockies first baseman, did get closer this year. And of course, Larry Walker will be inducted at the next ceremony. What is the chance that Helton will pass that 75% threshold and get into the Hall of Fame in the next few years? And if he makes it, would it help boost morale if not one but two Rockies were soon to be inducted? I think Todd Helton has a real chance. I've voted for Todd Helton every time I've had the opportunity to vote for Todd Helton for years and years and years and years. A lot of prominent baseball people and media members that cover baseball made fun of baseball at Coors Field because it's played at 5,280 feet above sea level, which changes the nature of the game and makes it a much more high-scoring game. And so for years and years and years, the hitting achievements of players were downgraded. That Larry Walker did get in the hall, maybe some of that stigma is being removed. That certainly could help Todd Helton's chances to make the hall in the future. And I I think it would give fans a sense of pride. But if Larry Walker is in the Hall of Fame, but the Rockies are in last place, I'm not sure that diehard baseball fans in Denver, Colorado will be happy. Do you have any advice for Rocky fans who are really feeling the pain of losing Arenado, the stigma of high-scoring, high-altitude baseball, and feeling a general mistrust of the management? Fans have a choice. 
If you don't like the way the Rockies are being operated, don't buy a ticket. It's simple as that. But I do believe this. Denver, Colorado is a Broncos town, first and foremost. The mood in autumn on Monday mornings in Denver is influenced, for better or worse, by whether the Broncos have won or lost a silly football game. That's not the case with the Rockies in this town. So fans, I believe, do have power and a responsibility to hold management of a team responsible. That was Mark Kisla, who covers the Colorado Rockies for the Denver Post, speaking with our producer, Alana Schreiber. If you'd like to read Mark's story for yourself, you can find a link at our website, KUNC.org. Whether you've been listening to Colorado Edition since its inception, or you're just catching the show now for the first time, you should know that we're all about the news and stories of our state. And it's important for us to feature the voices of everyday Coloradans on the show. Farmers, teachers, students, artists, from the Front Range to the Eastern Plains, whether you love the busy streets of Boulder or the beautiful ski slopes at Steamboat, we've created a space to hear directly from you. We're excited to introduce the My Colorado Audio Essay Collection. Today, we head up to the Yampa Valley to hear from our first essayist, a freelance writer and editor who's lived there for nearly three decades. I'm Jenny Lay, and this is my essay about a change in Colorado, as told from the Yampa Valley. 29 winters ago, I was a newly minted Colorado ski bum, another fresh import from urban California. I moved into a ramshackle house with a leak in the roof and a party line. I felt hard for the deep powder, soothing hot springs, and rustic charms of rural steamboat springs. I also fell for a tall, lanky mountain man. Together, we built a life and a solar-powered log cabin in the Aspens. Eventually, we went into the flat-tops wilderness, got hitched, and promised ourselves a lifetime of adventure. Since those early freewheeling days, it can feel like everything has changed here in the Yampa Valley. But then, I kick back on my chairlift swing and consider that maybe the most critical components have stayed the same. Northwest Colorado got wilder. We welcomed moose and lynx, and now we've even got wolves who wandered over the border. Nature here continues to deliver the goods, daily. It blessed me with full moon romps on rabbit ears and a freakish double rainbow over Michael Fronte at the ski hill. I skied, shoveled, and savored thousands of inches of snow and reveled in the short glory of a Yampa Valley summer. But climate change threatens everything. Greenhouse gas emissions skyrocketed during these three decades. Among my neighbors, I feel both hope and despair. What will happen to skiing? And a fossil-fueled economy that stoked the Yampa Valley for generations. Together, we faced the shuttering of coal mines and coal-fired power plants. Foundational changes are upon us. Since I arrived, Route County gained one capital W wilderness area, Sarvis Creek, and we expanded one too, Mount Zirkel. Right downtown, grassroots victory spawned a massive land exchange that forever protected Emerald Mountain as Steamboat's undeveloped backdrop and unofficial playground. Like the rest of Colorado, we got legal weed and we got a little bit fancy over the years. The days of dive bars for scrappy ski bums to consume cheap beer and dollar tacos are long gone. We saw $1.2 billion of real estate sales last year. Wealth earned in other places helped build the kingdom of money and inequality in our valley. 
I've watched my county shift from red to purple, and I've witnessed folks of all political stripe work together to protect wide open spaces, working ranches, and fragile ecosystems. In Route County, private landowners have put 140,000 acres into conservation easements since I arrived. I like to think they built a great wall of conservation, keeping Steamboat distinctly apart from Vale and the I-70 corridor. In my eyes, quirks and devotions of local people keep Steamboat's community character on task. Local pyromaniacs gave us claim to the world's largest firework. Regular folks taxed themselves to grow our public library. Citizens saved Perry Mansfield in Strawberry Park and the Chief Theater downtown. Hometown support grew Strings Music Festival from a circus tent to a stunning pavilion, and volunteers expanded our beloved free concert series from parties on the courthouse lawn to extravaganzas under the ski jumps. So yeah, now Steamboat's got a whole lot more traffic and never-ending construction. We've got more high-maintenance people and scarier fire seasons. The lollygagging pace of mud season is extinct. But we haven't lost our history, our culture, our dark nights, our celestial skies, our generosity, or the authentic goodness of folks who choose to live here. The cowboys and ski bums and artists and restauranteurs who take a gamble on financial struggles and extra shoveling in exchange for a profound connection with nature and the good fortune to just be here. After all these years in the Yampa Valley, for me, the meaningful parts hold steady. That was Jenny Lay reading her essay on a changing state for our My Colorado audio essay collection. You can find her written essay and more details about how you can submit your own essay at KUNC.org slash MyColorado. And that's going to do it for our show today. Thanks for listening. With Aaron O'Toole, I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production team includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.